Good morning. Today we'll be reading from 1 Samuel, chapter 2, verses 12 to 36. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burnt, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who is sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice part of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age, and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight 
and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread, and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. Thank you. morning again and welcome. It's great to be with you. I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2 as we look at this uh, account from God's Word together. We are in a series that is discussing the Lord's anointed and what it means to be the Lord's anointed and how we might know Him. And Uh, As we come to chapter 2, we come to what is a common human problem, which is the problem of succession. Uh, Ever since God instituted the punishment for sin, that would be death, humanity's wrestled with how do we deal with this idea of succession? Uh, It doesn't matter if it's in a company or in a family or or in any sort of institution. Uh, We all know that that while everyone uh, has equal value... Uh, that not all people bring good. (laughs) And so we find a good leader or we find a good politician or a good worker and we value and we honor and we treasure that person. But what happens when they leave? (laughs) We're confronted with the reality of succession. What's next? And it's interesting It's an interesting historical exercise to go through and try to see how different peoples and different cultures at different times have wrestled with this issue of succession. What do we do when we need to replace the person that we value so much? Sometimes it's a blessing. You say, oh, good, finally that person's gone. Um, But more often than not, the question is when you get a good one, how how do you follow that up? Uh, we see this problem come to the forefront here in chapter 2 as we look at Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Uh, we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel, and I just want to touch briefly why it's relevant. We've said this the last few weeks, but I just got to keep putting it in front of you. Uh, we do this, we're going through this book because we want to set a baseline for our theology We want to just understand at a, at a core fundamental level who God is, what do we believe about him. The next reason we're looking at this is we're trying to locate the favor of God outside of the Garden of Eden. We know that humanity separated from God seems to uh, get lost, seems to bring destruction, seems to bring difficulty and pain, Uh, but there's glimpses of the favor of God, and we want to understand where God's favor is and why it shows up. The third sort of reason this book is relevant is because we need to curb our lust or our appetite for power. Living again this side of the Garden of Eden, living cut off from God's presence, we learn how valuable authority and power is, and we tend to accumulate it because that's a way to secure ourselves. And so as human beings, this book helps us to recognize that tendency and to sort of help curb that appetite. 
But mostly what I hope you see through as we, as we go through this book is that you learn to savor Jesus because this book will make you thirsty, will make you hungry for the Messiah and what he brings. Uh, this message is titled, The Sacrifice Scorned, and it covers most of chapter 2. The big question that we're going to be tackling this morning is, how can we know the Lord? And I love how Eddie started this service today. You can have the greatest amplifier system in the world, but if you don't have the cable connecting that amplifier to your speakers, none of the beauty, none of the joy is going to come out. Similarly, God has all of the power and the majesty and the glory and the might and the beauty in his person. But if we don't know him, none of that passes through to us. So the question we're wrestling with today is how can we know the Lord? And the big idea I, I hope that you'll see from this text is that God gives a mediator or a priest to draw his people in worship. The priesthood is a gift from God to his people to draw them into his presence so that they might know him and worship him. With that, I'll just give you an overview of where we're going this morning. Uh, you're going to see a contrast emerge through this text uh, between Eli's sons and between Hannah's son, Samuel. It's a, it's a contrast that's designed to expose the corrupt worship that's happening here at Shiloh. So it's kind of a sad story, but it'll have a happy ending. Uh, most of this text, we're going to look at the corruption of the priesthood. That's part one. Part two is the priesthood restored. And then finally, the priesthood today. With that, I invite you to pray with me. Lord God, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would humble our hearts so that we could receive your word. God, we pray that your spirit would teach us in the inner place, in those parts of our mind and our heart, of our soul and of our will and our desire, Lord, that can only really be shaped by you. Father, would you forgive us, Lord, for our presumption that we can just automatically know things about you. Lord, would you forgive us for the way that we come to you and view you through the lens that we put on. So, Father, would you gather up all our lenses this morning? Would you set them aside so that we could see you through the light of your word? that we would know you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The priesthood corrupted to Samuel, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. Uh, I know this is starting in 12, but I'm going to read from 11 because this is important. Elkanah goes home. They've dropped off uh, Samuel. There's the boy is ministering before the Lord under Eli the priest. Verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels, or literally sons of wickedness. Uh, they had no regard for the Lord. That phrase is, in its most basic term, they did not know the Lord. To know someone in the Bible means more than simply to contain information about a person or a thing. It means relationship. It implies connection. And so here you have a very tragic scene where you have two boys, the sons of Eli, who's functioning like a high priest here, the sons of Eli, and they don't know him. They don't know God. And yet they are responsible for the worship. 
NIV says they had no regard for the Lord. Now, how does that play out? The narrator tells us in verse 13, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Now, this is where your eyes want to glaze over, but you can't let them glaze over right now, okay? Because this is going to show you the heart of the corruption. To worship God in that day, you didn't simply close your eyes, put on your favorite playlist, raise your hand, and go into a quiet moment, right? You, to worship God, you had to worship him in the place that he prescribed. And he had said that he would meet with his people at his tent of meeting, his tabernacle. And at this time, that was located at a place called Shiloh, which was just across the Jordan River. It was the same tabernacle that Moses used to meet with God. And so this tent structure is set up in Shiloh. Now the people, when they come into God's presence, you can't just walk in like you might walk into the office of a co-worker or walk into your principal's office or go have a chat with your teacher after class. You couldn't just do that because God is holy and human beings are not. And so when a human being comes to God, God prescribed that for them to be able to know him and to worship him, a sacrifice had to be made. It was to show and to remind the people that it would cost something to go into the presence of God, that they were not right with him automatically. And so when they bring the offering, God prescribed that after the animal was killed, that that offering was going to be treated in a certain way. And we know from the Old Testament that that offering, the fat portion of that animal, was to be burned. It was to be burned. It was for the Lord. We know that there was a part of that offering that was set aside for the priest. That was the muscle around the breast of the animal, as well as parts of the right leg. But what we see here is really a charade of what the worship and the sacrifice was supposed to be. So yes, the people are bringing their offerings. Yes, they're bringing their animals and they're killing them. But what happens next? The practice that we see going on here is that these two sons and then the servants and their servants, um, what they would do is the people would make a sacrifice and they would then begin to boil the meat. Now, Instead of setting aside the portion for the priest after it had been burned and offered to the Lord, here the meat is not offered to the Lord first. The priest comes by and takes something out. Then they often wanted the fat portion, so they weren't following the right procedure. But then the impression that we're given here is that it was Really, the priests coming in, and it's kind of, a, kind of a, a lucky dip. I think that's what they call it here in this country, right? There's no mention of this three-pronged fork, right, uh, in the Old Testament, but they sort of developed this tool, and you get the sense by the way we read verse 14, whatever, the, the, the fork would be plunged into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. It really didn't matter what was there. When the fork came along, the fork got what it wanted, and so what you have here is the priests who are meant to be facilitating the worship, who are rep representing the people to God and God to the people, the priests are interrupting that and instead fattening themselves. They're not giving the Lord the fat portions. 
they're coming along to the pot and they think, hmm, you know what? We better not let that, let that filet mignon cook too long. It's better if I pull that out now and then I can go roast it at my own little barbecue off to the side. I know you're Australian, so you know how to do a good barbecue. I'm trusting this will land. Verse 15, but even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. Now that's not true. So they're giving them false instruction. Now if the people protest because they know it's not supposed to be this way, here's what the priest would do. The priest would say, uh, if the person said, let the fat be, be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. So the priest's servant turns into a thug, as one commentator put it. You see what's going on. Verse 17, the sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now we might read that and say, that's a procedural error. What's God getting so upset about for a procedural error? You have to recognize what this means if we're going to grasp how weighty it is. The people are offering to the Lord the sacrifice that is required. And before God can get what is rightfully his, the priests come in and take it away. Not only are they being selfish, but they're blocking or they're interrupting the people from worshiping the Lord. We're told here they're treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, when you read that word contempt in the Old Testament, you, you can also read it as, as, as they're treating it with scorn. Um, in, this, in this context, it, it means that they're treating it too lightly. They're treating it as if it doesn't really matter. And so when you give light treatment to weighty matters, you are treating those weighty matters with contempt. If a key person in your life says, hey, I really need to talk with you, and you blow them off and blow them off and blow them off and blow them off, they will say, you're treating me with contempt. You're treating this relationship with contempt. Why? Because you're not giving it the gravity that it deserves. You're not giving it the weight that it deserves. And so this offering, which belongs to the Lord, which is a part of the worship of his people, is being robbed. Their sacrifice is being scorned by the very people who are called to facilitate that worship. They're abusing the privilege of their office. And here comes the subtle contrast. Verse 18, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. We get a little nice story here about Samuel. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it with him when she went up with, the, with her husband to offer the sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, may the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and, she, and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So here's this wonderful picture, and, and I, for those of you who are going to join us for the duration of this series, just put a little, put a little asterisk or a bookmark during, in this section where, where it talks about the robe that Hannah is making for Samuel, because Samuel's robe is going to be a, a perfect illustration 
for the transition and the work of God. It's a pivotal, pivotal garment. We're going to learn throughout this book, as one commentator put it, that the clothing can use to be either reveal the wearer or to conceal the identity of the wearer. And here, this priestly garment is being woven year after year by Hannah for her son as he's growing. She brings it. And this robe that Samuel wears, just, just follow it as we go through this book. It's a fascinating, fascinating uh, journey. But I don't have time for it here. We're going to learn more. Again, back to the, to the sons of Eli. Now, Eli, who was very old, was hearing about everything his sons or heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. Don't love that translation there. It's, it's better to say he kept hearing. He kept on hearing. It wasn't as if somebody said, oh, Eli, by the way, this is going on. And he said, what? No, he kept hearing this from the people. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So now it's not just a failure in their office. Now it's a moral failure. The attendants, the women who were helping again to facilitate the worship, working and serving at the tent of meeting, these women now become objects of lust for these two young men. And they sleep with them. You get the impression they wouldn't have had much choice in the matter, given the way the sacrifice was being treated. Eli says to them, why do you do such things? I hear that from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. Now, it's not as if Eli is evil. He's not an evil guy. He understands that it's wrong. But it is a failure, no less. Eli comes off as a bit, Brueggemann says, inept. He's inept. He sees the wrongdoing, but he doesn't do anything to make a change to alleviate it. He just sees it going on, going on, going on, going on. No, my son. So he gives them a sharp rebuke. And this is what he says. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? Now, that's a great question. He's reasoning with his sons. He's saying, hey, look, if you get in a fight with somebody else, you can plead to God on your behalf to come and to help you. But if you pick a fight with God, who's going to get in there for you? Who's going to help you then? If you snub your nose at your creator, if you snub your nose at the one who gives you life and gives you breath, if you corrupt his way and his people, who's going to be your lawyer? Who's going to represent you in that case? It's a great question. Note, his sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Whoa. That's a woe. It's not saying because they didn't listen, the Lord would put them to death. It says the Lord's judgment had already fallen, and because that judgment was they, would, they were to die, that prevented them from listening. Beware if your heart grows callous to the word of the Lord. Beware if the truth of God's word is not 
causing any sort of response in your heart. That is one of the scariest places I think a human being can be. Sometimes we think it's so bad when, we're, when, when, when our heart is broken over the word of the Lord. When, when, we don't, when we have to wrestle with our own sin, when we feel the weight of conviction. Sometimes we think that's terrible. I want to say to you, that's good. Because that means your heart is tender. That means that your heart is pliable. It's horrible and dangerous. If we ever get into a place where the word of God bounces off us, where our heart becomes like Teflon and you put whatever you want on it, nothing's going to change it. It's a dangerous space to be. God had already passed his judgment on the sons. And then we get this comment, the contrast again, verse 26, and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with his people. Isn't it a beautiful, isn't it a beautiful thing? The young man, as he's growing, as his legs are getting longer, as his shoulders and chest begin to fill out and broaden, as his face gets a bit of acne, as his body is, is developing, so too he is maturing. He's growing in grace and in godliness. Isn't it interesting how Luke, when he was writing his gospel, he chose to use this phrase to describe the years, the hidden years in the life of our Savior Jesus, the years that we don't know about, the years of learning to be a carpenter and working and parenting. Luke is happy to summarize with this phrase right here. He borrows it. He picks it right up out of this book. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Oh, young people, may this be your goal and may this be your aim, that as you grow physically, you would grow spiritually. That as you mature and develop, you wouldn't simply accumulate knowledge, but that you would grow in faith. That you wouldn't just simply gather facts about the world and the observable universe, but that you would gather strength in a true knowledge and relationship with God, your creator. There is nothing, <laughs> if you listen to Hannah's song from last week, there is nothing more important than knowing the Lord. We don't look down on young people. We cherish young people. We recognize it is a wonderful time and a wonderful season to not just, not just grow in your person, to grow in the love and in the favor of God. This is something that Eli's sons missed out on. So here we have corrupt people in a corrupt practice. The judgment of God falls. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says, did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? Now Eli's a descendant of Aaron, who was the high priest. God says, didn't I show who I was to you? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. If you look at that garment that Aaron was meant to wear, it was a very special garment. Only he could wear it. It had all sorts of things on it. It was to set him apart from the community. On it was the Urum and the Thummim, I don't know if I'm saying that right, which was God's 
decreed means of discovering his will in particular matters. He also wore stones representing each of the tribes of the people of Israel. So when Aaron went into the holy place once a year to make the sacrifice of atonement, to, to in effect cleanse people formally of their guilt, he was bringing the people with him. But here, the people are not being represented. The people are not being allowed to worship. Their people aren't being allowed to know God. He says, I gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? Literally, why do you kick at my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering made by my people Israel? God hits him right between the eyes with exactly what's going on. He says, Eli, in effect, Eli, you see, you have put me and your sons in a balance, and you have given more weight and more honor to your children, to these boys, than you have to me. You have allowed them to fatten themselves. What's hard to convey in English is the word for honor, the word for weight, and the word for the choice parts. It's all the same word. It has to do with this idea of heaviness. He's basically saying, you've taken the glory for yourself and you've robbed me of my glory. Wow. Therefore, the God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Why are we reading this series? This brings us back to fundamentals in our theology. What's our basic understanding of God? God says, I will honor those who honor me. Brothers and sisters, beware the danger of pride. It's like that sweet cheese that the devil just puts right on your, right on your plate. And he just says, just, just take a bite. Just, just have it. And it goes down so good. Man, does pride taste so good. It's the Kool-Aid we love to drink. But pride is, is, is at its heart, it's an arrogance. It's an unwillingness to let God be the most important. To let God have what is his. And pride puts me in a position where it blinds me to the glory of God so that I begin shifting the balances, you see. And I begin to be saying, God, I think you have enough honor. I'm going to bring some honor over to myself. Pride makes me think that's okay. Pride makes it sound sensible. Pride makes it seem the logical and the reasonable thing to do, you see. Pride is so devastating because not only does it cause us to become idolaters, but it blinds us in the process. It seduces us like some siren song drawing us to the rocks where we will eventually, inevitably crash and suffer shipwreck. 
It caused the Pharisees, who dare I say were more well-read and more well-learned than probably any of us may ever be in the scriptures of their time. It caused them to miss the Messiah in their midst. Why? They couldn't see him because they were jealous. They were envious. Pride is dangerous. And probably the first, the first way to know that you're susceptible is by saying, well, yeah, maybe for others, but not for me. God says, no, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. Christian, I hope that Windsor District Baptist Church can be a place where you see people bringing honor to Jesus Christ. If you hear from this pulpit, whether it's me or somebody else, if you hear out in the car park in the foyer, if you hear one of our deacons or one of our elders or ministry leaders or volunteers, if you hear them skiting about how great they are and they forget, they forget to point to the Lord. They forget to draw the attention to Him. Please, lovingly, gently, pull them aside. Pull me aside. And say, brother, sister, let's remember who this is for. Let's remember what this is about. God shuts it down. The time is coming, I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. You see, the problem was the priests were abusing their position and their privilege. God says, you think that's your strength? Well, this is going to get cut short. You will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. You'll see, if you keep reading this book, how this is fulfilled. But you get the picture. These people used the priesthood to prop themselves up and to exalt themselves and to honor themselves. And God said, no, I will cut short your strength. Brothers and sisters, you cannot read this account and you cannot come to the conclusion that simply being in the house of the Lord makes you know the Lord. These two boys grew up in it. They were a part of it. They knew all the rituals. In fact, they'd invented their own ways to go about it. But yet in this very place, the narrator is portraying for us the one that God is about to bring low, the one God's about to put a stop to, and the one who is growing in their midst who will do what he has called them to do, who will bring honor and glory to God. Simply being a part of the furniture, simply being in the house of the Lord didn't mean that they knew the Lord. I think it was Billy Sunday who said, being in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than being in a garage makes you a car. The story reiterates that. The priesthood was corrupted, but the priesthood would be restored. Verse 23 and 24 point to what's going on among them. 
The sign is given. What happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. You see, God shuts down the line of Eli. He, he causes the house of Eli to fall, but he's raising up Samuel who will minister before his anointed one, who will minister before his king. And Samuel will have in his heart and in his mind the things that God has in his heart and in his mind. A priest's job is to represent the Lord to his people and his people to the Lord. It's a wonderful picture. Then the judgment is reiterated again. Everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. Hannah's song again, she said, the ones who are full are hiring themselves out for food. The picture is really bad. He says, the ones who do survive, Samuel, uh, Eli, the ones who do survive from your line, they're going to come up and they're going to beg just to have a crumb. They want to have a priestly role so they can just have something in their bellies. You see, you can't read the headlines today and not hear in this an implicit indictment of leadership in the Western church. I saw an article float across my feed yesterday that said in the United States, where a lot of these surveys are done, in the United States, uh, respect for pastors has dropped another eight points. It's declined another eight points in the last, I think, five years. Now below chiropractors. Nothing against chiropractors. That's just the mark where it was. Still above politicians and lawyers. No offense to politicians or lawyers. You can't read this and say, we've done a bad job. You can't read this and say that people in positions of power and authority have abused those positions. And it ought to make us vigilant. But what I want you to see in this is that God saw it first. And in the very midst of this going on, he has this man, Samuel, this boy. It's as if God already had the next one coming. He already had his servant set apart, his servant chosen. There's a problem, though. A a faithful priest cannot make the people faithful. (laughs) You're going to keep reading in this book, and you're going to see Samuel's a great guy. He's a godly man. He, He does what God wants him to do. He has high regard for the Lord. He's eager to facilitate worship and to help the people know the Lord. You're going to watch this over the next few weeks. But you're going to realize that even Samuel, who's doing his job right, can't fix what's wrong in the people. Even a faithful priest. Which is why the writer of the Hebrews says this, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. 
But when the priest had offered for all, but when this priest, he's talking about Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies about this. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, a sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. You see... Samuel, for, for, for as great as he was, and even though God had a plan, the problem with humanity was too big for Samuel. It needed a savior. And God's promise, his judgment that's declared in this chapter, his promise to raise up a faithful priest we know is fulfilled in Jesus Christ who offered the perfect sacrifice. It was uncorrupted. No one came in and interfered with it. Nobody took part of it, the best part for themselves. He offered his whole self entirely to God that we would be made clean so that we couldn't just be allowed to continue to go through with the rituals, but that we could be transformed that we could know God for ourselves. Did you hear what the writer says? After this sacrifice, because of this perfect sacrifice that the true and great high priest, Jesus Christ, has made, an offering of himself on the cross, because of that, people will know the Lord. They won't have to go. They won't have to rely on some priest. They won't have to rely on some pastor. They won't have to rely on some other mediator. They can know him for themselves. He will put his law in their minds. He'll write it on their hearts. He will reveal himself to his people through his Holy Spirit. We need faithful servants, but the true and the only perfect servant has already made the sacrifice. And that's why we can know the Lord now. Which brings me to this. Jesus is the one who is both <laughs> priest and king. The favor of God is upon him forever. There's no problem of succession with Jesus. Death's not going to take him out. He will ever live to plead for you and for me. He stands at the right hand of God and he says, whoever is thirsty, let him come and drink. Whoever, whoever is hungry, come. Whoever would have a part of this, you can have a part of this. He stands, he lives to intercede for you. Jesus is the answer to Samuel's, to Eli's question to his sons. Eli said, who's going to help you if you pick a fight with God? And as humanity fell silent, God said, I have the answer. My son, he will intercede for you. He will plead for you. We can approach the throne of God with confidence, expecting to receive grace and mercy for our time of need. Why? Because God gave us a mediator that we would know him 
and worship him. Which brings me to the last point. What's the priesthood today? What's the priesthood today? You might be tempted to say, oh, well, it's the people that run churches. Isn't that pastors? No, actually not. We are the priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Brothers and sisters, you get to be the priests. You get to represent God to the world. And you get to pray and bring the world to God. What a wonderful privilege. If you carry the analogy further, you see in Romans chapter 12, Paul would tell the church in Rome, he said, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. And the idea that we now join Jesus, we share in his ministry, we offer ourselves Why is it so important that we love each other? Why is it so important that we not get in the way of what God is calling one another to do? When we abuse our brothers and sisters, we're interfering with the sacrifice. We're interfering with God's portion. We're interfering with the ones that God has chosen for himself. We need to be very careful how we treat our brothers and sisters. We need to treat them with respect and with dignity. We need to treat them as though they are the Lord's first. But God is sending us out to the world as priests to declare his praises. What do we learn about God? I, I, I don't think you can read this passage without recognizing that God is great, greater than you probably imagined, and that if you stand to eclipse any part of his glory, that you're setting yourself up for a bad end. Rather than trying to accumulate honor for ourselves, why don't we just, in effect, like a translucent lens, disappear and magnify the glory of God? God raises up and he brings low. God's favor is seen in the one who will represent him accurately, the one who will humble themselves. Power is easily used and abused. If you're in a position of authority, if you're in a position of some privilege, this ought to make you slow down even more. And as the kids say, check yourself before you wreck yourself. But how can we savor Jesus? A faithful priest can't make the people faithful. He can't make their king honor God. But God knew that the people would need a knowledge of the Lord and to know him. You see, it wasn't enough to simply go through the right ceremonies. We needed to see God in the flesh. Which is why John 
in the beginning of his epistle, 1 John chapter 1, he says, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which our hands have touched, He's saying, I know the Lord because I looked in his face. I know the Lord not just because I read about him in a book. I know the Lord because he spoke to me, because he became like me. That's why the incarnation is so important. That's why we don't, that's why that Jesus is fully man and fully God is a doctrine that we cannot give up. That which we have seen with our eyes, that which our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. We didn't need a proxy. We needed the real thing. God knew a stand-in was never going to be enough. So he came the Son of God came. And by virtue of his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God, he is now freely able to invite all who would have their sins forgiven, all who would want to know God, all who would want to be in his kingdom. And the beauty is, he confirms that through the pouring out of his spirit. Is Jesus Christ here this morning? Do you see him? Before he ascended to heaven, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For lo, I am with you always. We carry out the priestly ministry of Jesus as the Holy Spirit communicates to the world about our God through the grace that he gives to us. Father in heaven, would you reveal yourself more and more? Would you bless us with a knowledge of you? May we humble ourselves. Would you protect us from pride? Lord, the lessons of humility are hard, but they are far better than a fate apart from you. So, Lord, would you strengthen and encourage us today. May we see Jesus. May we see your redeemed. May we see lives offered to you. We ask this in your name. Amen.